0: All right, so this is our last uh, sermon in the series on loving one another. I hope, uh, hope it has been as convicting and encouraging to all of you as it has been to those of us who have taught it and prepared to teach it. Uh, the Lord has done some really, really cool things in and among us through this series. We've had some unbelievable conversations um, about what this actually looks like to live it out. How do we love each other and live it out uh, with each other? I want to remind you of our sort of our key verse that has been throughout this series, John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus said, I am giving you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also love one another. And by, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Reminder that the converse is also true. If we do not love one another in the way that Jesus loves, it's going to be very, very difficult to convince anyone that we are in Christ or that we know Christ. Jesus said, This is a mark of being in me, is that you love one another. The reason that we can do this, and The power that we have to do this through the Holy Spirit is because we are one in Christ. We are of the same body in Christ. And Scripture uses this analogy of the human body to describe the body of Christ because we're all part of one another. And Paul even goes so far to say, can, can the head say to the hand, I don't need you? You know, or can the foot say to the eyes, uh, no thanks, we're good by ourselves, we don't need you? No, I mean, that's kind of preposterous to think about that, but we sometimes function as Christians as if we're in our own little island and that we're not part of the body of Christ, and that's not what Christ died for. We are one in him. So we're going to look at Romans chapter 12 today. I'm going to read through it. First, without putting it up on the screen, sorry, I should have told you that, I'm going to read through it, because I want you to just listen to what the Apostle Paul is saying, and then we're going to go back and break it down verse by verse. So let's start with Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many parts in one body and all the body's parts do not have the same function so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually parts of one another. However, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to use them properly. If proper if prophecy in proportion to one's faith, if service in the act of serving, or the one who teaches, in the act of teaching, or the one who exhorts in the work of exhortation, the one who gives with generosity, the one who is in leadership with diligence, and the one who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Love must be free of hypocrisy. Detest what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another In honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, and serving the Lord. Rejoice in hope, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and practicing hospitality. Pretty succinct statement of what it looks like to love one another and what it looks like to be in the same body with christ notice how paul starts verse three he says through the grace given to me i say to everyone among you who's he talking to here who is the book of romans written to it's not a book it's a letter who's it written to it's a pretty easy one romans yeah don't overthink it he he was writing it to the church in rome The Christians who are in Rome, I don't know if you know what Rome was like during this time. Was it pretty friendly to Christians? Yeah. I love how Christians in the United States think the United States is hostile Christians. (laughs) Okay, Uh, let's go back and look at history. All right, Rome is anti-Christian at this point in time. It's ruled by a Caesar who thinks he's a god. And the Christians are being frequently persecuted. Paul is writing to this church. And he says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Why do you think he's starting off this discussion about being one in Christ with an encouragement not to think too much of yourself? Right, if you're thinking about yourself, you're not thinking about others. And if you're thinking too highly of yourself, then you might put yourself on a pedestal above other people and now you get to look down your nose at them. And well, I'm further along in my Christian walk than so and so and mm, so I'm pretty feeling pretty good about that. The original sin is pride, right? This idea that I'm going to be like God. And so I'm thinking of myself more highly than I should. I want to be a God too, and now I'm, boom, I've fallen into sin because now I've taken myself out of the spot that I'm in. Paul says, right off the jump, all the stuff I'm getting ready to teach you about, you won't do it if you think more highly of yourself than you ought to. (laughs) If you think you're awesome, I mean, it's one of my favorite David Lynch quotes, which I use over and over. You got to be over yourself. You got to be real over yourself. To follow Christ in the way that he has made us to follow him. Because if if you're all about you, it's going to be tough to do this. Think so as to have sound judgment. He Don't think more highly of yourself. And in fact, don't think that the knowledge that you've gained or any of the experience you've gained is making you a better person. You should use that so that you have sound judgment and discernment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. How many of you, when facing a difficult decision, consult other brothers and sisters in Christ about what you should do? Yeah? Like, I don't know how else to do it, but we find within the church that we we rarely do that. And a lot of times we just consult the person we know is going to agree with us, We call that an echo chamber where you just go to the person that you know is going to agree with you and you ask their opinion so they'll just affirm the bad decision you're getting ready to make. And you're not willing to go ask somebody who you know is probably going to disagree with you or somebody who's just in a completely different walk of life. But if I just went to lawyers all the time and asked lawyers what they thought, I'm only going to get lawyer perspectives. And that's going to be a, a more narrow perspective, whereas if I go to another person who is in Christ, who has a different profession or has a different perspective, I'm likely to get a very, very different read. That's why we're one in Christ, because loving one another in Christ and and thinking to have sound judgment should, combined with me not thinking too highly of myself, allow me to get others' perspective. I mean, we're just having a conversation in the lobby this morning where we're sharpening each other with different perspectives on how to stop abusing people by being right all the time. I mean, I spent a large portion of my life abusing people and putting a lot of pressure on myself because I had to be right all the time. I mean, it's, it's still something I struggle with every day. I have to get up and go, Jesus, make me not be that guy today because that guy is a danger to the body of Christ because he has to be right, and so he thinks himself highly and more highly than he does of others, and he's not going to treat people well. So kill that guy for me today, please. right? Because I can't be that guy. That's what he's talking about here. Look over at verse 5. We who are many are one body in Christ, and the body's parts don't have the same function. Individually, we are parts of one. Have you ever thought about yourself as being one with another believer sitting in this room? I know some of that can get awkward. But but that's what Jesus is saying. Like, so this is not just relegated to, like, husbands and wives being one or besties being one. Like, you got your best friend, and that's usually the person who never disagrees with you, right? But when they do, then you aren't best friends anymore. I mean, that's the way our world functions. Like, that's my best friend. Okay, why is that person your best friend? Because we, we like all the same stuff, and we do all the same stuff, and we all pull for the tigers, and we, that's why we're best friends. But let that person disagree with me one time, and then the world explodes, right? We are all one together and it doesn't differentiate by age or experience level. It says if you're in Christ, we are one with each other. We are part of each other. So if I'm arguing with you, I'm arguing against myself. If I'm holding a grudge against you or hating you, I'm hating myself. That sounds stupid, doesn't it? So if I'm viewing myself, if it's the way I view the world in Christ is that we are all one, it's really, really difficult. I mean, it's like my right hand cutting my left hand. I'm injuring myself, and the only person that's being injured is me. I didn't hurt I didn't hurt anybody else, I hurt myself. And that's really why he's driving this picture home of what it looks like to be one in Christ. Look at verse 6. He says, we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So first of all, he makes it very clear. Your gifts that you have are given to you by God. No matter how much you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps or how many degrees you have or what you earned or how much experience you have, he says very clearly, the gifts you have are according to the grace given to you by God. God gave you the gifts that you have to use them for his kingdom And he says, each of us is to use them properly. Have you ever been asked to do, or have you ever tried to do something that was way outside of your skill set? And you you remember how that feels when you're asked to do something that's outside of your skill set and you're like, wow, I am way, way out of my field here. And it usually doesn't end up well. Now, obviously, the process of learning has to involve doing things that I don't know how to do, so hopefully I can learn it. But there are some things that I'm just never going to be able to do. It doesn't matter how many shag lessons I take. It doesn't matter how many ballroom dancing lessons I take. It does not matter hip-hop. Like It doesn't matter what I do. I could be trained by the best dance instructors in all the land. I am never going to be a dancer. You know why? Because I cannot dance. I do not dance. I cannot dance. I am stiff as a board. You watch me on an athletic field and you'll be like, yeah, that guy, look at me and look, he's really, really coordinated. And he's really, he's got great balance. He's got great, and I've always had that. I've always had great balance. I've always done a good job of like not losing my balance and falling down. Or I mean, at athletics, I've always excelled. You get me on the dance floor, you'd be like, does this guy, like he doesn't even, I'm not sure he can chew gum and walk at the same time. You know why? Because Dancing is not my giftedness. So it doesn't matter how much instruction I get in that. I'm I'm never going to be a dancer. And if I tried to dance, everybody's going to go, yeah, this is is a really bad idea. But you think about that within our body, where you have regularly watched someone trying to operate outside of their giftedness because they want to be awesome. I mean, that's a huge failure. That's a really big failure. We need each other. I need your giftedness you need my giftedness so that we can be complete and be whole and be one body in Christ. He then goes through this list of a couple things that is a gifting. Prophecy. If prophecy, if service, or the one who teaches, or the one who exhorts, or the one who gives, or the one who is in leadership, or the one who shows mercy. Well, what, what are these things? Because sometimes we hear these words and it sounds like preacher things. Like that's what the pastor is supposed to do. And the pastor has all of these. That's the way I grew up. I was trained that whoever the pastor is, he or she has all of these gifts. And they must have all these gifts. And if they don't have all of these gifts, then you need to go find another church where the pastor does have all of these gifts. The truth is that no pastor has all these gifts. And in the pretending to have them, the body is weakened. Because I now have the head thinking that it can dribble a basketball. I, I, I can't dribble the basketball very well. I need my hands to dribble basketballs. So, but if the head is constantly dribbling basketballs, not only are we not dribbling very well, we're definitely not going to score any points in basketball. It, it seems pretty straightforward when we look at it. But in practice, we don't do it. So what's prophecy? It's not telling the future. It's not gazing into your crystal ball. It is simply a proclamation of a divine message. Prophecy is revealing something that is hidden. It might be something in Scripture that you didn't see that I saw, or that I didn't see or you saw. When you tell me something that you saw in Scripture that I didn't see, you are prophesying to me. You are sharing a divine message with me or revealing something to me that's been hidden. That's all prophecy is. So, if you have the gift of being able to look at Scripture and see something that others might not see, or if you have the gift of discernment, where you can go, man, I, the emperor doesn't have on any clothes. I mean, that's one of my favorite stories, right? There's just the little boy, and everybody is complimenting the emperor on his invisible clothes when it's very clear the emperor is naked. And there's just the one kid. There's the one prophet in the group who goes, uh, "The emperor's naked." Everybody, no? Okay. That's what prophecy is. What's service? It's ministry. It's ministering to other people. And not just ministering to other people and serving them, but it's also organizing service so that it is effective. So if you have the gift of organization, if you have the gift of administration, if you have the gift of putting things together, if you have the gift of being able to serve others, that is a giftedness that some of us possess, Others of us do not. Teaching. That's just imparting knowledge, wisdom, and experience. If you have knowledge and wisdom and experience that you can impart to someone else, you can teach. Some people are going to be more gifted at it than others. Some people have made teaching come alive. Think about the teachers you've had in school or in college that made the subject matter come alive for you. You know, you have the one course where it's just like, You know, the scene from Monsters University where he's like, you know, somebody says can design is a boring subject. You know, we all had those teachers where they're literally just up there in the monotone just giving you the information. And then you have the teacher that made it come so alive that not only did you excel in the class, but you enjoyed it, you remembered it, it stuck with you. And you said one day, if I ever get a chance to teach somebody something, I want to teach like that. That's the gift of teaching. What's exhortation? That's a big word. It's just encouragement. Or making an appeal to someone to move from over here and come back over here, okay? That's, ex- that's exhortation. You know, you see the little kid going to touch the hot, no, nope, I'm going to exhort you to appeal to you to come back over here and get away from that hot stove. Why? Because you're going to bring your hand. Just being able to lovingly go and put somebody out of danger. Or just be an encourager. I am not a natural encourager. I love having encouragers in my life. I am a natural cynic. And I just assume that if something's not going wrong, that I don't need to say anything to you. My partner, John Crawford, he's a natural encourager. He will just say regularly, you're doing a good job. Or I would like for you to see you do this because I think you can do it. He will regularly give that encouraging feedback where... You know, if I asked you to do something and you did it, that's what I asked you to do. You're paid to do that thing. Awesome. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I asked you. You did it. I paid you to do it. Having the gift of encouragement is a really, really important thing, and it's key to the body of Christ because we need people among us who encourage others to keep going, keep doing it, especially when people like me forget to encourage you. Generosity. What's that? That's just giving liberally. Nothing held back. The Bible encourages, all, encourages us all to do this, but some of us are gifted in this way. Some of us are just naturally, liberally generous. Not only do we need that gift within the body, because some people are not, but we need that example within the body. Because some of us don't naturally give. Some of us are, are not naturally giving people. Some of us are tightwads. And we need generous people not only because they provide the generosity, but we also need to see that example. What's leadership? It's just going before, it's setting an example, managing. It's not a title. Guys, it's not a title. If you, my favorite hat, you know, I'm their leader, which way do they go? That's not leadership. Having the title of calling yourself the leader doesn't mean you're the leader. Leaders just lead. And if they're continually reminding people they're the leader, they're probably not the leader. Because they have to keep reminding people that they're the leader. Because no one's following them. And it's because they're not leading. What's mercy? It's just a demonstration of compassion or forgiveness, restraining power. How do I know that someone is a good person for real? How do I know someone is really living a life of Christ when they have power that they do not exercise because of Christ's influence? That's all mercy is restraining something that someone deserves. (laughs) It's mercy. These are just a few of the gifts that God provides through his grace to us, and that's why we need each other within the body. Look at verse 9. He says, Love must be free of hypocrisy. We could park here all day. We're not going to. You all know and you can think in your head of what it has felt like for someone to love you hypocritically or for someone to say they love you but they really don't. They may just like you or they may be saying that so you'll overlook the fact that they mistreat you. And one of my favorite things about abusers, right? Abusers regularly say, but I love you. Oh, but I love you so much and sometimes I just get so passionate about how much I love you I have to hit you. That's a regular thing. That's not love. That's, like, that's the opposite of love. Love has to be free of hypocrisy. It has to be freely given. It has to weather all the storms. He says, detest what is evil, cling to what is good. If we're going to love each other in the way that we should, because we're one body in Christ, we've got to put aside things that are evil. We've got to stop chasing them. And that doesn't just mean the overt, blatant, I don't murder people. That means getting evil things out of my life. Why? Because if my hand has a disease, right? If my hand, have I have cancer in my hand, in order for my body to survive, that cancer has to be removed. That evil has to be taken care of or it's going to eventually infect my whole body. And, you know, people talk about Christians being weird and, you know, living the Christian life is weird. It is because we have to put evil aside in order to be one body in Christ. If one group of us is over participating in the things of the world and listening to the things of the world and engaging in the conversations of the world, we're not going to be one. We're going to be a diseased body. Be devoted to one another. Be devoted to one. What, is it, what does devotion mean? Anybody know what devotion means? Who here has been in the military? Or is currently? What does the military define devotion as? Loyalty. In the face of what? Anything. <laughs> Loyalty in the face of any adversary devoted to one another. How many of us could honestly say that in Christ I am devoted to every person in this room and would go to the ends of the earth to be in relationship with that person regardless of the odds? Can you honestly say that? It's a really important question that we have to ask each other, but that's what being one in Christ looks like. Devotion. Give preference to one another in honor. That means when my desires come up against yours, I prioritize yours. And that all it goes all the way back to this idea of not thinking more highly of myself and not being hypocritical. Because if my desires come up against yours and I lose, my tendency is to pout and blow my lip out. And half the time, I don't even know what I'm mad about anymore. I'm just mad. Because you didn't do what I wanted to do. That's not, that's not how it works. My back and my hamstrings did not like anything I did yesterday. Okay? But they didn't. I, I bent over, I pulled weeds, I pulled old tomato plants, I raked, I hoed, I loaded wood. My brain made my body do that. Okay? But my body prioritized What needed to happen, which was my garden needed to be cleaned out, and I needed to do some stuff for my father-in-law while he's down in Jacksonville visiting his sick sister-in-law. Sounds easy when I explain it that way, but when I think about that aggravating person who I just don't like the way they do things, when I think about prioritizing and giving preference to them in honor, another military word, the reason the military uses these words because you have to have honor and devotion and loyalty or you won't do what the military requires you to do which is the hardest job on earth. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. That's what it looks like to love one another. Diligent, fervent in spirit, and serving the Lord. One of the things I used to as a young guy growing up in church and moving from being a kid to being a teenager to being a young adult, I was always amazed at how much pastors had to just literally beg people to do something. And my dad, I mean, he would get, he was like a hype man. And most Sundays, like he was the hype man. He had to get up and try to fire everybody up to do just the basic things a Christian who loves Jesus should do. Don't yell at your kids. Uh, Come to church occasionally. Yeah. I mean, he was literally spending all of his time trying to fire people up to do something that those who are in Christ should naturally do, including being fervent in spirit and serving the Lord and doing something diligently. I also was always amazed by people who, I've been this person, people who, Put all their effort into things that are making them money, but when they come to do something for God, they just do it halfway. God will be okay with that. I mean, we we gave it a shot. That's not what it looks like to serve each other and to be part of one body. We are to be diligent and fervent. Rejoicing in hope, verse 12. Persevering in tribulation rejoicing in hope. (laughs) When's the last time you rejoiced with somebody when something good happened for them? Most of us, my my boss, Henry Brown, one of my first bosses, mentor, he used to say, we all want our friends to do really well, just not too well. Because we don't want them to do better than us. Uh, we, We were happy for them when it didn't impact us, or when it didn't make them look better, then, then we're happy for them. But then we're, when we're not, then we gossip and we talk about how terrible they are and how they crawled over people to get ahead. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, sticking it out. Sticking with someone when they're going through the hardest thing they've ever gone through. Even if it's the result of their own actions, even if it was self-inflicted, just persevering and being with that person and sitting through it devoted to prayer you guys wonder why we spend so much time talking about prayer if we do not pray together and if we are not devoted to it our body is broken and incomplete it, it, the body is sick we have to pray together contributing to the needs of the saints how many how many times do we get off on contributing to the needs of people who don't know Christ completely ignore people who are in our body. I'm not saying we don't help people who don't know Christ, but there's a reason that when, they, when you get on the airplane, they say when the oxygen mask drops down, put your mask on before helping others. Like you have to be breathing first before you can help anybody. The body has to be strong before we can go out and try to do something else for someone else. And we like projects, right? People we like, especially Americans, we're altruistic. Pablo and I were talking about this the other day. I mean, apparently Ecuadorian's not altruistic. (laughs) Apparently not at all. It was very fascinating just to hear him talk about like the mentality within the culture that he has to deal with and the selfishness and just the lack of generosity in general. And he said it's just a general misunderstanding of what it even means to be generous, right? As Americans, we live in a generally altruistic culture where we want to give things and do things for people, but to be one in Christ, we have to contribute to the needs of the saints. When's the last time you checked with one of your brothers and sisters in Christ to see if they were okay, to see if they needed anything? Whether it's spiritual or emotional or financial or whatever it is, What? Do we know what each other's needs are and are we helping meet those needs? I mean, to go all the way back to Acts 2. It said the church was together, meeting together. They were devoted to the teaching of the apostles and they all gave so that no one was in need. I mean, one of the biggest problems in church culture, especially in the Western world, is that we will let people sit in our congregation who are barely making it and the pastor is driving a $75,000 vehicle and living in a gated community, and I got somebody sitting in my congregation, and we're talking about going out and doing this project over here. We're going to go build houses for the homeless people. like, dude, you got people in your congregation who are about to be homeless themselves. Not only are you not giving so that they'll have what they need, you're asking them to give more to you So you can go get a new set of drapes. You guys see how broken that is? (laughs) Another example. Christians think that it's Christian to be capitalist. Capitalism is not a Christian notion. It is a governance notion. Okay? Socialism, also not a Christian notion. Not in the form that we've seen it. But there is an aspect to us contributing what we have so that no one here is in need. Christians look at that and they go, oh, that's socialism. You're going to encourage people not to work. But that's not what the Bible says either. The Bible says you, you work. And if you work, we're going to come alongside you. Right? If you're laying on your couch not doing anything and you come to the church and go, hey, I, we need some groceries. We go, oh, well, why are you laid on the couch? Well, I've been sick for a really long time. Okay. You're laid on the couch. We're going to come help you because you're sick. It's a give and take because why? We're one body in Christ. We are going to pull together and help each other. Why? Because we're one. We don't leave anybody behind. We don't leave anybody lagging. But we also eschew these terms... That means get rid of, Ellie, so you can start using that word, eschew, E-S-C-H-E-W, eschew, to get rid of this idea that we've become ingrained because our Christianity is some combination of the American dream and Judeo-Christian morality. That is not what it means to be one body in Christ. We are one together. What's mine? is yours. People don't believe me when they come to my house and I go, just go in the fridge and get what you want. Well, ah, I mean, it's yours. I literally mean that. Can I borrow your truck? Sure. Do you have a driver's license and insurance? Yes, yeah, then there you go. I mean, I can't let you illegally drive my truck. <laughs> yeah, that's a different story. But if you can legally drive, yeah, you can borrow my truck. Well, what if I wreck it? It's a truck. You're a human being bought by the blood of Christ. How could I possibly prioritize a piece of metal over you? You see how stupid that sounds when I say it? And yet Paul is exhorting us here. He is begging us to view ourselves as one in Christ because we are. My food is yours. If you came to my house this afternoon and said, man, I I need to sleep here tonight. Why? I can't really go into it, but can I crash? Absolutely. Now, if you're married, we're going to have a follow-up conversation in the morning after everybody's gotten some rest because there's probably a different set of accountability and help that needs to be provided there. But yeah, your couch is, your couch is mine. Right? I tell people all the time, come fish in my pond. You know who, who comes fishing in my pond? Nobody. You know why? Because you're guilty. Because you don't want people fishing at your pond. And you don't want people coming and get your stuff. Because you like your stuff more than you like other Christians. I'm just. That's why this is a command. Like the reason that Paul's having to train the church in this way is because we do not naturally do these things. We get what we want when we want it. Practicing hospitality. Have people in the body of Christ. In your home. It's totally cool. They're not going to eat you. I don't think. Jerry might be out. No. We're good. We're good. No one's going to eat you. But just this practicing of hospitality shows that we're one in Christ. When you come to my house and you eat my food and you sit for a little while and hang out. There's a joy in that I can't adequately describe to you. I just can't. Talk. I mean, we had folks over at our house, people we love dearly over at our house this week, and that was such a great time. And you know how quickly the conversation moved to something spiritual? Just out of nowhere, now we're talking about the Lord and all of our different journeys and how we got here and how the Lord has trained us to love each other well. That just happened on its own, sitting at a table, watching a football game and eating some Mexican food. And by doing that, we become more one. Like, today I am closer to Todd and Amber and Will and Katie than I was before we did that. Why? Because I know more about them. I now know more about their heart for the Lord. I now know more about their journey. I now know more, more about what's important to them and how they share the gospel with other people and the perspective that they bring. Four of us at the table grew up in church, five of us in the table grew up in church. One did not. So it was really cool to hear from him because he came to the Lord later in life and he's the, he's the why guy. He's the guy that most churches will kick out because he keeps going, why do we do that again? Hey, we'd like you to be a deacon. Why? What do you mean? It's, a, it's an honor. What do deacons do? Well, I mean, we, we meet and we, we count money and uh, we have wild game dinners. Um, we, we point off in the distance together. Why? Wait, show me, can you show me in the Bible what the deacons do? Yeah, you're going to have to leave, man. <laughs> that's important. Why? Because we're one body in Christ. I need the why guy. I need the why lady. I need the person who. am this doesn't make sense. Because we can very quickly fall into doing something that's not God's word. And I need that one of you in this audience who is a prophet and shows things that are hidden to come up and go, I feel like you guys have gotten way off track. That's why we're one. Look at what Jesus prays for you. You know Jesus prayed for you? Still prays for you. The Bible tells us he is regularly interceding daily, constantly for us. That means Jesus right now is praying for you and for me. Right now. He is praying for you at all times. But when he was in physical form here walking with us, he prayed for you. Look at John chapter 17, starting in verse 1. It says, Jesus spoke these things, and raising his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you, just as you gave him authority over all mankind, so that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is how he starts his prayer. Down to verse 20. He says, I am not asking on behalf of these alone. And when he says these alone, he's talking about his immediate disciples. I am not asking on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word. How many of you have believed in Christ through the word of Scripture? Anybody here get saved without hearing the word of scripture? Right. So every person in this room, he's referring to in verse 20. I'm praying, not just on behalf of these guys that have been walking with me, but on everybody who's going to come to believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. That was his prayer for you. That is his prayer for you today. Just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. So the same relationship, God, that you and I have, I'm your son, I am God in the flesh. The same relationship that I have with you, I want for them that they will be one. That they may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Why do they need to be one? So that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I also have given to them so that they may be one just as we are one. He's saying it again. It's pretty important. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in their unity. Why? Again, so that the world may know that you sent me and you loved them just as you loved me. Jesus, at the end of his earthly life, is praying this prayer fervently. Begging God, pleading God to make us one. Because he knows if we're not, nobody's going to believe that he's the Christ. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people about the gospel who go, but what about all the infighting among Christians? Y'all can't even agree on simple things. How can I know what's the truth? How can I know? People won't even go to church together. They won't even pass on the same side of the road if they go to different churches. They're constantly infighting. Why would I want to invite that into my life? I got enough arguments. I got enough hassle. I got enough worrying about cliques and people excluding me. Why would I go involve myself in another group of people who are going to exclude me and look down their nose at me and treat me differently? And they're absolutely, unequivocally correct. And that's the hardest thing about sharing the gospel because you have to sit there and go, no, you're right. You're right. But let's get our focus off that for a minute. And I want to take you to John chapter 17. Because here's what Jesus Himself, God in the flesh, prayed that we would be one. So, all I'm encouraging you to do this morning, all I'm begging you to do, is to spend time with the Lord. Ask Him to change your heart. Ask Him to change your perspective, particularly on other people, particularly on the people that get on your nerves the most who are in Christ, that you would be one. Because all of this infighting and backstabbing and gossiping and not getting my way and not having what I want the way I want it, all that does is cut against the gospel. It just shows people we don't believe in Christ any more than they do because we're not one in him. The unity that God has died for, that he rose again for, to buy for us, the thing that he prays for, for us repeatedly, that's what he wants for us, is to be one. Me with you, and you with me. And if we're one, God can change the world through us, and through the spread of his gospel. That's why we've been teaching for the last however many weeks, on loving one another and what that looks like, that true love. Because all of those things are how I know that I'm loved. You're willing to hold me accountable. You're willing to disciple me. You're willing to forgive me. You're willing to walk with me in tribulation. You're willing to encourage me. You're willing to correct me. That's how I know that you love me. If you're always agreeing with me, I think what you just want is quiet. Or you just don't want to have confrontation. But I'm not really sure you love me. The times that my wife showed me the most that she loves me is when she's willing to call me out on my mess. That's how I know she loves me the most. Because she's willing to engage in the really, really hard thing to stay in this relationship. And to make it what God wanted it to be. Not just to have peace in the house. I got to tell you right now, I will be dead honest with you. If what my wife wanted was peace in our home and not for me to be godly, I'm not sure any of y'all would like me. Because she would put up with stuff she shouldn't put up with. And she wouldn't correct me on things that needed to be corrected. And she wouldn't guide me back to the path of righteousness and go, no, but see, Brian, Jesus is over here. I know you know all these verses. But then that's cool. But Jesus is over here. And that's what we want to do for each other. And we have to do that together, spending time together. And we have to pursue his things together. And when we're not pursuing his things together as one, it all falls apart. And then we don't like each other very much. And then we fight, and then now it's bad. And the people who suffer the most are those outside of these walls who have never heard about Christ because we can't reach them because we're too busy not being one. I'm just going to beg you as we head into the Christmas season and we think about Jesus coming and we're going to sing songs about peace and unity and we are the world. We're going to do all of that and we're going to pretend like we like each other for the next month. The world's going to pretend like that it all likes each other and everything's fine. While the world is pretending to do that, let's do it for real. Because Christ has given us the power and the grace to do it. Let's commit to each other that we're going to be one in Christ. And let's stick to it. Let's dig in. And go, wow, yeah, I'm, man, I'm really uncertain, but I am totally going to take that step. I'm totally going to take that step and let the Lord overcome my vulnerability so that I can engage and be one with other brothers and sisters in Christ. That's, that's what we're encouraging you to do. That's why we want you to listen to God's word when he says, love one another. It's absolutely critical. And the truth is, if we can't get past this step, I think Z may even use the word prerequisite. I might be misquoting. But if we can't get past this step, we can't do anything else. <laughs> So when you come up and go, well, what's our next project? Are you loving one another? Well, gosh, no, but I, I need a project. See, but that's why you need a project because you want to go do a project instead of loving one another, or you want to do a project instead of sharing the gospel with other people. We we want to focus on what God has called us to do and what He's gifted us to do together, not apart in our own little islands. Let's pray. God, we love you. And we give you thanks for loving us and for showing us what real love looks like. God, we just confess today we fall very, very short. So far short of your love and your grace, your goodness, your kindness. God, but we thank you that you're merciful to us. God, I pray this morning that you will just convict our hearts and that you will put a passion in our spirit for unity and for being one in Christ. Help us to remember Christ's prayer that we should be one as you and Christ are one, God. I can't even wrap my mind around that because you are one in the infinite definition of the word. You could not be more one. And your prayer is that we will be one in the same way, God. That is overwhelming. But it's encouraging to know that you are praying that for us and that you've given us the Holy Spirit who can bind us together in unity. And that we really can love each other this way. And that if we do love each other in this way, that crazy things will happen. Just as Brie gave thanks this morning for experiencing people who really love her. God, help us to think of what would happen in our body if we really love each other. And we're willing to stick with each other through all of our faults and failures and through tribulation and when things aren't going our way, if we are willing to persevere and be devoted to each other in honor God. Help us to see what that would look like for us as individuals, what it looks like for us as a body, in our families, in our relationship. God, all that is broken about us is repaired in you. All that is broken about our relationships is repaired in this three simple words, love, one, another. God, pray that you'll help us to love one another.